This morning we're going to be reading out of uh, 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 through 15. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by earnestness of others that your love is, that your love is also genuine. For you know that by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now, finishing doing it as well, so that your readiness is in desiring it may be matched by the completing it that completing it out of what you have for the readiness is there it is acceptable according to what a person has not according to what he does not have for i do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened but that as a matter of fairness your abundance at this time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need that there may be fairness as it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Good morning. So this morning, if, uh, oh, normally I'm the other way around. Excuse me while I reorient myself here. Notes to the right. So if I have not met you yet, my name is Nikolai. I'm one of the pastors here. And I have the wonderful opportunity to speak, well, I would say speak to you this morning. But we're going to have kind of a conversation as much as one person standing on the stage can have a conversation. But we're going to be walking through um, not just this passage today, but, but kind of a big idea. Um, this is always, I'll just be honest, I'll, I'll peel back the curtain a little bit. This is always the weird Sunday, right? Advent's over, Christmas is done. Let's be honest, not everyone is here that normally is. This is sort of the in-between time. This is not a Sunday we would start a new series because, you know, People are still traveling or whatever. So this is always the, the wild card, the oddball sermon. Um, and I think, I think for as long as we've been coming, I've, I've preached this Sunday. Um, but here's the cool opportunity. Then, then we can actually just kind of talk about something that is important, something we need to, or 
um, you know, something that is, is, is poignant without having to do a whole series, something like that. And, and, and so for today, even just reading through the passage, uh, or, or listening through the passage, reading it on the screen, um, you see, we're going we're gonna to talk about giving, and there's some, some key words that kind of pop out of that passage, right? Poverty, giving, um, there's earnestness, um, depending on your translation that you're taking a look at. There's, um, there's some pretty big concepts and ideas. And, and part of this, this morning, um, is kind of spurred on by something that is going on here locally. Just looking at, uh, if you've had the, we're in Sonoma County, so everywhere we drive is pretty beautiful. But so if you've had the pleasure of driving Highway 12 and seeing the, um, shantytown's not the right word because it's an alley of sorts. Um, but the, the group of folks that are congregating there to live, and it's become a, a topic of conversation. Am I wrong? Are, are people kind of talking about this, whether it's a, you know, a couple times or mentioned, man, look at that thing over there. You've seen the video or you've seen it on the news or something. Um, it's something to think about, and it brings up a lot of good conversation points. Well, what should we do? Notice this morning, driving in, hey, there's there's a there's porta potties set up, so it feels like this is becoming more of a substantial thing. You can say, "Well, the city's trying to do something nice," and then it comes into the question: Are we saying that they should be there? You know, that's not the intended purpose of the that path. Um, so it brings up a lot of questions, but really, it comes comes down to kind of these bigger conversations. People who don't have, or people who lack, what do, what is our responsibility as people who have? Right? So even if, you're, if you kind of go away from that conversation just to the larger conversation, what is our responsibility? What are we supposed to do? You know, a couple of weeks ago, we uh, had Brent come up and kind of talk about the state of, of giving here and the finances here, and we want to be really open and transparent about that. And, you know, some, there's a lot of focus on a lot of areas there, but one thing I hope that you're able to see when the numbers are put up there, we actually do give quite a bit to benevolence. We can always give more, but... It's sort of like, what is our responsibility? What should we do? So we can think about that for the church, but then also as individuals. What are we as individuals supposed to do? And so if you don't know what to do, you go to the scripture and you kind of find this. And what's great about this is that we have, in this passage, we have such a great conversation. And I used that word before. It's a conversation that's going on. We don't have Paul writing very many letters, multiple letters to churches, we would do with Corinth. And so we were able to kind of see a progression and start to, to see that. And we also see Paul mention another church, another group of churches that he also wrote letters to. It's actually pretty neat. And we see in Acts him visiting these places. So you have actually quite a bit of context around this conversation. So we're going to look there in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. So if you have your Bibles or you have uh, a phone with a Bible app upon it, go ahead and go to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Ryan was gracious enough to, to read through it this morning, and so we won't necessarily read back through it again. But in looking at this, I want to highlight a few things, and then we'll have a good conversation around this topic. In 2 Corinthians 8, the, in the context here, we have Paul writing this second letter. There's probably other letters written to Corinth as well. Paul here is responding to converse, like other conversations he's had with them. 
Specifically, Paul references a conversation that they had had about a year earlier. There are two different churches mentioned. There's the Corinthians, the the church at Corinth, and there's the churches of Macedonia. So I want to talk about those two churches. So Paul is writing this letter to Corinth. Corinth is a rich church. They're well off. It's a very rich area. Um, They have, um, in comparison with other regions, they have a lot of resources. So the churches, bless you. So the churches here in Corinth, they're very well off. They don't lack for anything. All right. The churches in Macedonia, however, are quite poor. Now, Macedonia is a large area, but the church that we would probably focus on in the area of Macedonia would be Philippi. That church there is in that region. So if you want to kind of think back to the topics talked about in Philippi, or even Paul going there with Silas, right, being in prison, earthquake, Doors open up, talks to the Philippian jailer. That's Macedonia, that area, that region there. And so these churches in Macedonia, they are the opposite of Corinth. They're poor. Philippi, that area of Macedonia, used to be, used to be very rich. They had a port. They had a, a, they were very, uh, it was a very active place for trade. But then over the years, silt started to fill the harbor until eventually ships couldn't come in anymore, and then that was kind of it. Economic decline after that. Their main source of income, pretty much gone. So you have the situation where the churches in Macedonia are themselves in great need. I want to introduce the, a third church, or group of churches, churches in Jerusalem. We'll talk more specifically about it later on, as far as that situation goes, but the church in Jerusalem at this point, was experiencing a famine and had been for a while. So the year previous, Paul talks with them and says, hey, church in Jerusalem, they're in trouble. Gave the same conversation with Macedonia. The Macedonians gave. Yes, the churches that are in poverty gave. They gave a sizable gift, and Paul talks about that in this passage. Even though they had very little, they gave. He said they actually gave beyond their means. They gave a gift. The reason why the church in Jerusalem is in focus, when the church very first was established on the day of Pentecost, there were thousands of people who were there, and those thousands of people who were saved stuck around. They stuck around for a while. And guess who supported those thousands of people staying and living there in Jerusalem? Church in Jerusalem. They're even selling property so they could fund this time period of, of these people staying there for, for these people to learn from the apostles. And then they went back home. Well, now the church in Jerusalem, who had given so much out of their storehouses, out of their, out of their own wealth, now they were all in need. They had a famine. And so they'd say all the churches throughout the region, throughout the Roman world, were served by the Jerusalem church. So now it's time. Now it's time to give back. The church in Macedonia gave. Church in Corinth said, yes, we'll give. But guess what? They just forgot. There doesn't seem to be any malice here. It's not as though, yeah, we're going we're gonna to give, and then they just didn't give because they decided the church in Jerusalem didn't need it or they were being mean or something. They just kind of forgot. It wasn't a priority. It wasn't a big deal for them. And so in this passage, Paul is saying, hey, 
you, you promised to give. And we'll, we'll look at a passage later on that where he gets a little bit more specific. He says, it's, you, you said you would give, but you, you just haven't. You, you just didn't. And so in here, he actually does kind of, kind of introduce a small measure of shame to say the churches in Macedonia have almost nothing, and they gave. They gave well beyond their means. And you just, it just wasn't even important enough for you to even remember to give. And so we set, set out that sort of scenario there. The, those who were wealthy, just it was not a priority to give, even though they themselves had bore benefit. And so you have this scenario here. Now Paul could just have said, hey, just, just give. All right, you said you would, just do what you said you were going to do. Just, just a reminder, just, just give. But he doesn't. He brings up something that to teach a lesson first. So I think it's important for us. So we're kind of in this scenario where, where we, are, we are actually the wealthy. And for some of us, you say, well, we live in Sonoma County. I have barely anything left. We'll think about what we have. If you compare ourselves as Americans living in California and Sonoma County to the rest of the world, we are the rich. We are the wealthy. We have. And it's complex, and there's lots of things and issues and stuff. And, but you know what? There's, there's food out there. If you were hungry, there was food. If you really needed a place to stay, there are many people here who could help you out. So what I'm saying is we are actually pretty wealthy compared to the rest of the world where there are people who, large communities, don't live with even those basic things being plenteous. So we, we are the rich, whether you really feel it or not, in comparison with anyone else around us. We have, Right? Growing up, we'd, we'd have people over to the house. My parents still say this. If you leave hungry, that's your own fault. Right? And that's, that's kind of us. If we go hungry, it's kind of our fault. For a lot of it, right? Uh, because we do give to each other. Because, you know, the other thing that we have here in this room that not many other people have, we have the church. We have the body. Right? If we are really, really in dire straits, there are so many people that would come to help us. Right? I think it's just a simple meal train. That's a small thing, but think about that. There's a lot of churches who don't even have that to take care of each other just to, during these times, right? So, anyway, all that to say, these are good things for us to think through. But he leaves them with a lesson. Look at the last verse in our section here. Verse 15. Paul references this. He says, As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over. Whoever gathered little had no lack. That's a quote. So where's he quoting that from? Well, start flipping if you have a Bible. Uh, Exodus chapter 16. Exodus 16. All the way back here, we go to a lesson. Exodus 16, verse 18. You can see the quote here. When they had measured it with a nomer, whenever, um, sorry, whoever gathered much had a little left over, or I'm sorry, had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. I bet you, you could guess from where we are, maybe even reading the little header there, what is it talking about? It's talking about manna. I want to set up this, this scenario. I think I've, I've, I've taught on this before, but we're going to go much deeper today on this, on this topic here. But what we have is we have this situation. So people... The people of Israel, the nation of Israel, left Egypt. And guess where they went? A place where there was nothing. 
They were living out in the desert. These are, this, these are agrarian societies. They might have their herds, but they don't have any agricultural means. They're wandering. They pretty much have nothing. They're wandering around out there. So what does God do? God leads them to a place, and they complain about this all the time. Did you lead us out here to die? God provides for them food every single day. Every day you can go out, and there's going to be manna. Manna means, what is it? It's very weird when you walk out, and there's just like wafer-type bread all over the ground. That's very odd. It's very weird. It doesn't happen normally. But for them, the entire time they lived out in the wilderness, every single day they received this manna. Now, there was one rule with manna. Who knows the rule with manna? Well, there's two rules, I guess. What's the big rule with manna? Anyone remember? Don't gather too much, because what happens to the manna from yesterday? It molds, it spoils, got worms in it. It's gross, right? So there is a lesson, a huge, huge lesson to be learned there that Jesus even references in Matthew, in his Sermon on the Mount, give us today the bread for today. The bread that they needed for that day, God would provide in the morning. You know that there were probably amongst the nation preppers. That first day, they go like, I'm going to hang on to this stuff. It's just sitting out there, right? After the sun came up, it would kind of melt away, so you only had that morning. It's like, I'm going to gather a bunch. Well, what happened the next day? Everything left over was gone. What it forced them to do is every single day renew their faith that God was going to provide for them. Every single day. So they go and do that. Now here, here comes the, the interesting situation. Let's say that you gathered some and you, you have enough for the whole day. Oh, the other rule was on Friday you would gather a double portion so that on the Sabbath you wouldn't have to gather. That was the one day where there was the exception. Which actually brings us into the scenario. Probably a little bit more. Um, let's say that you gathered, and then you got to dinner, and you're like, oh, we don't quite have enough. For most of us, it would be like, oh, it'll just be kind of a slim, slim dinner, and we'll just have more tomorrow. How many families out here have um, children 10 and older? Oh, put them up there high. Come on. You need prayer <laughs> beyond just this example. But if, if it came to dinner and you didn't quite have enough, how would that go over? Not, not real well. There'd be some complaining. There'd be some whining. And you know, you've got teenagers. They're going to eat. They're going to eat a lot. And you can't really plan for it all the time, can you, parents? It's like, I don't know, get some cereal. I, I, we, we are out of food. Just eat something that's in the pantry. They can't do that. They had to gather in the morning. So now imagine you're out of manna, and it's dinner time. What are you going to do? You can go out, and you can go to your neighbors, and there's going to be a couple families where they don't really have uh, any kids that eat that much. You know, they're all young or something. They say, well, we either actually have extra. You can just have it. Why? Why would they freely give this manna? Think about it. Why would they freely give it? There's more tomorrow, and whatever we have left, the leftover is going to spoil. It builds this perfect scenario where imagine this. Every morning you wake up thinking, God's going to provide for me today. And if I run out, God's going to use his people to take care of me. And they learned it every single day for 40 
years. There are kids who grew up with that mentality in the back of their head every single day, every day. And it says the day that they entered into the promised land, what happened? Manna stopped. But the lesson had to continue. Okay? Now, here's what's interesting. If we continue on and go to Leviticus, we start to get some of, some of the laws that are given in here. So Leviticus 27 gives us something here. And it seems like it's, we're out of left field, but it'll tie together. Trust me. Every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. This was given to them while they're still in the desert. When you get to the land, one-tenth of your produce one-tenth of what you produce, of, of whatever it is, herds, fruit, whatever. And that would extend on into other areas that are not agrarian. They would do the same. Uh, this 10%, that's the Lord's. It was setting them up. When you go there, now, now imagine this. Here, too. The tithe of the land. Is it their land? Really? I mean, it's promised to them, but did they... Is it, is it their land? When you think of it this way, they come wandering in from the desert. They do some conquering or whatever, but still, that's, that's land that the Lord gave them. So the Lord says, hey, when I give you this land, you give me just, just give 10% back. That seems like a pretty good thing. And honestly, that, this, this rule has, has endured, and there are a lot of people who think about it, even, even today when giving, oh, I give a tithe. And we're going to look at some things and kind of challenge that a little bit. But here it says a tenth of it, it's the Lord's. It's holy to the Lord. It's separated out. It's for the Lord. But I think the bigger uh, sort of lesson to pick up from this actually happens a few chapters ahead of this. In Leviticus chapter 23, we have a principle laid down. Before you ever get to the tithe, we have this general principle given. Leviticus 23, 9 through 14. This is the feast of first fruits. Have you guys heard of the first fruits? First fruits. Guess what it is? It's the first of your fruits, right? It's, it works in there. It works out well. Um, the idea and the concept is, is that they would have this festival right at the very beginning, right? Actually, before any kind of harvest would normally happen. And this is the first fruits, the very first that would come. Guess what? Guess who gets that? That actually goes to the Lord. Now, we need to highlight something because this ties together every lesson they learned in the desert. First fruits, that first crop that you get normally comes before the general harvest and it's regarded as normally the best. Pro tip, if you're going to go and get strawberries, you get the very first that come out and they're the best. Absolute best of the season. You'll never have a better strip. Maybe it'll ruin the rest of the summer for you, so don't do it if you're worried about that. But the best, same with, with a lot of different Crops, the very best is what comes first, and it's before the first harvest. So guess what? The Lord says, that you'll give me. It is the best, but guess what else this is? This is actually your insurance policy. Most farmers would take their first fruits, and guess what they would do with them if they weren't going to give it to the Lord? They would store it. You don't know how the rest of the harvest is going to go. You don't know if you're going to have anything to plant with the following year. There are some things called the latter rains. And the latter rains, if they came in, they could destroy your crops. There was, it was a late storm, and that late storm could destroy a lot of your harvest. And if that happened, all you would have would be whatever first fruits you held on to. 
So guess the principle that they're being taught here in an agrarian society. You give the first to the Lord, and that means you're trusting the Lord for the next year's harvest. That principle is laid down before a tithe. Now for some they would give, and it wouldn't, their first fruits did not equal their first 10%, so then the tithe comes in, you give them the rest, right? But this principle is so important to hold down because what it introduces for us is this concept and this idea that those who give, you give in faith. And that's the point of, 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 of the gift. The point of the gift is, is how you give. That's, that, that's kind of the point of this. If we give, because there are a lot of people who could just give 10%. Imagine if you were a merchant. You didn't have to worry about that. I'll just give 10%, just kind of toss it in there. There you go. But for a lot of these, uh, a lot of these farmers, for a lot of these folks who lived in this agra- very rich agrarian area here, that, that's what they would have. They had to really think about this. So this giving of the first, even the first of the flock, you give the first fruits, that hurts, that hits. But guess what? It encourages you to trust the Lord for the rest. When you give... You give that way. And here's what's interesting. We don't talk about a lot of these particular laws very often because for most of us, they, they, they kind of don't apply for us. We don't, most of us are not in an agrarian type of uh, industry. We don't, we don't think that way, right? But this is really important because this principle pops up again in a place you probably wouldn't think. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is all about the resurrection. It's a great chapter. Verse 20, something important pops up here. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20. says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The what? The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Jesus himself is the first fruits. Now, we could actually sit here for a while and really go through this. Think about this. You know, a few weeks ago, Man, it might be more than more than a month now. Um, I had the uh, the pleasure of uh, preaching on on Jesus, the Lamb of God. So think about this: there are a lot of places in the New Testament where Jesus is referred to in some of these these terms. It's, he's called the Lamb of God, right? He was the first. He was the best. Actually, he was only Lamb of God, right? So all other sacrifices, all the blood sacrifices, were, they were shadows of him. What else is he called? He's also called the bread of life. He's the bread. He's the grain offering. But guess what? He's the perfect grain offering. He is the substantial offering. And in fact, his resurrection. Think about this. Who gave the son? We're getting, we're getting all deep and Trinitarian today. Who gave the Son? He says the Father gave the Son. He gave His only Son. He gave the one. He gave the lamb. He gave the grain. He gave uh, the grain offering, uh, the bread. Uh, this, is, this is tying to Jesus. Every other offering before this not only paled in comparison, but was all pointing to this offering. Jesus himself is that. And what's interesting is he was born in Bethlehem, which does mean house of bread. He is this offering. And so when you look at this, it's in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits. He's the first fruits of the resurrection. This gift that God has given has become 
this first fruits type offering, we can look and see that he is not only the best, but the first fruits meant there's more to come. He is the first, he is the best. He's what everything was pointing towards, but it's a guarantee that more is coming. He is the first fruits of the resurrection. So when we look at that, all of a sudden, when we get to the incarnation, we get to this season we just celebrated, Advent, and it becomes a lot more. This was the act of giving. And so it really does come down to us. We just celebrated this time and talk about this gift that God has given us. Well, then what is our responsibility after having received such a gift, having received his best and seeing God's example in that? We then need to think through, we need to quantify, we need to deal, it, deal with it in our own hearts. How are we going to be givers? How are we going to give like this? We even just celebrated a time where even if you give something small, you, you give something to someone else. It's, it's something we do. It's part of our culture and tradition around this time of year. We give. But then it's, it's really, and we say, you know, if you, ha- if you are a part of a Christian household, Lord willing, you're able to say, we give gifts. Why do we give gifts? I have kids, so we get to talk about this all the time. Why do we give gifts? We give gifts because God gave the ultimate gift. Well, that's the example. But it's not just for Christmas. It's not just for Advent. If we give gifts and we're learning these things, these are, these are training wheels. We, we, our kids should learn those things. And this happened in all the feasts throughout Israel as well. Kids are very involved. Why do we do this thing? We do this thing for these reasons. And then kids would learn that and they would employ that in their own lives. And we need to do that in the same way. Not, our kids are not the only ones who need to learn to give. We need to learn to give. But we need to learn to give in the right way. How do we give? Well, if the Father is the example of giving, that's a big example for us to live up to. But we're supposed to. We're supposed to live, excuse me, live in that example. He's given by the Father, so then the question really does become, how shall we give? And now we, we run into the, the part where we'll continue having this conversation. Both a little warning, because we can start to go to some other passages and have the conversation, and we can do it incorrectly. Because we can go to some passages, and we can kind of pull out of there, here, here is the lesson you're supposed to walk away with. If you're rich, you have to give your stuff away. The end. But to what end? The rich just give because they're made to feel guilty? Doesn't sound right. It's actually not the lesson being taught. Although you could go to multiple passages throughout the New Testament and pull out that particular teaching, and you can hand that to people and say, this is what you have to do, and make people feel guilty about giving. And we don't want to do that. That's not actually how the New Testament handles it. That's not how Paul handles this. How are we supposed to give? What are we supposed to look at? What are we supposed to look to? Look at Matthew chapter 19. Jesus has this conversation. Do you know what it means when a preacher looks at his watch? Absolutely nothing. Except I am actually looking at what. Um, look at verse uh, 16 with me. This begins a familiar story. 
Behold, a man came up to him saying, obviously the him is Jesus, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? He said to him, Why do you ask me what is good? There's only one who is good, and if you would, uh, ent- I'm sorry, and if you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? Jesus said, Did you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So there you go. We'll stop there. Do all those things. Feel good about yourself. Oh, no, that's not how it goes. Verse 20. The young man said to him, All these things I've kept, what do I still lack? I haven't killed anybody. I haven't committed adultery. I love my neighbor. We're good, right? Jesus, of course, has a lesson here. Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, wow, pause there for a second. I feel like this is one of those times where Jesus knows what's going on in head and heart, puts it together and says, okay, well, if you are perfect, this is what you do. Go sell what you possess, give to the poor, you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. What's the young man do? When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And that's normally where we end the story. We'll go on from here, but let's, let's rest on that for a second. He says, I've done all of those commandment things you're talking about. So Jesus highlights the part of his heart that he has not offered the Lord. He says, sell all your possessions. Now, I'll pause there for a second. Do you have to sell all your possessions to follow Jesus? You don't, right? This is the one place where Jesus says it, but he does it on purpose. Because what does the man do after that? The young man's like, oh, the cost is too high. I'm out of here. He was willing to do all the stuff, all the commandments, do all the things, but he was not willing to sell all his possessions. Went away sorrowful. Oh, man, there's just no way to get to heaven, I guess. I have to sell all my stuff. Verse 23, And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. I want to pause there for a second. It's only with difficulty. Okay, There's actually uh, some folks who say, like, you can't be rich and go to heaven. But here's the difficulty. The difficulty is, is those riches can't actually be the competing God. They can't be the thing. So whatever you hold on to, and I don't care what it is, fill in the blank, anything you hold on to, if Jesus were to say to you, hey, give that up, you say, why? He says, well, I'm your master, so give it up. And you said no, then that would mean that the thing that Jesus asked you to give up is more a master than Jesus is. That's just the general principle. You can write it down if you have a notebook. Think about that, because that's, uh, that one that, that's one that hits the heart. Only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. You say, like, well, now that sounds impossible. How can a rich man enter heaven then? When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, bless you, who then can be saved? Isn't that a weird response? Well, if the rich can't be saved, then who can be saved? And this highlights the incorrect thinking that the disciples had. They looked at the rich and said, look how God has blessed them. They clearly 
are favored by God. They clearly are going to heaven because they are favored by God. They're obviously some of God's favorite for a reason. And that's really the mentality that they had. Who can be saved then? They were looking at the wrong things. They were looking at the wrong criteria to see God's favor. Wealth is not a one-to-one ratio of God's favor and blessing. It just isn't. And in fact, Jesus has a whole sermon about that that we spend a lot of time going through. The Sermon on the Mount, turning a lot of those ideas on its head. But Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Who can be saved then? So now we see the challenge, right? We see the disciples just, just speaking to Jesus, kind of highlight the idea, well, I mean, if, if those folks can't, can't make it, if that rich young ruler can't make it in, I don't know how in the world we're going to make it in. Look at, look at the pastors that follow us here. <clears throat> Jesus looked at them and said, With man it's impossible, with God all things are possible. And then Peter said in reply, See, we've, we've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? We have nothing. We're following the king of kings, and we've got nothing. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who, were, who are first will be last, and the last will be first. They did leave. Right? Even... Peter and James, they, they left a family business to follow Jesus. They did. They, they left something substantial. They all did. All the disciples at Matthew, he left his, he was a probably a pretty successful accountant, right? Tax collector. He left it. He left the tables. Went to follow Jesus. They did leave these things that had nothing to show for it now. And Jesus says, you're not investing in now. When I sit on my throne, you'll have then. You're investing in something else. You're getting something back that's even greater than you can imagine. So you're not coming up flat. You come out on top. Look at the last verse. And many who were first will be last and the last first. Meaning this. You look out around the world and you can see who, who would God regard as great? Those ones you'd put first in line are probably going to be the last to receive that. There's another passage, we're not going to go to it, but it, it talks about how the, the earth groans and waits and longs for the revealing of the sons of God, revealing of the family. When the time comes and Jesus arrives and he sits on his throne, those people that most people disregarded all of a sudden are elevated and highlighted to a place of, of authority, a place of of great wealth and a, great, a place of position. And it's, it'll be quite jarring. The people who God puts first and who people have put first. Stark contrast. We're not going to spend any time uh, looking at some of, uh, I think, really poignant 
passage. We'll, we'll handle that in um, maybe in, in other conversations that we can have. But Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. If you've played sports on a Christian team or a Christian school or something, you've got it. If you've probably got at least one shirt or something with it on there. What's the verse? What's it say? I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I want, I want, you ever seen the power team? Anybody? Anybody? The power team. Yeah, I knew, Alden, see, I knew, yeah, exactly. I knew you'd seen it. The power team. These are like strong men. They're all believers, and they would do like crazy feats of strength, like rips, like phone book stuff. <laughs> the one I remember is they blew up a, a hot, like a hot water bottle until it exploded. I'm like, oh my goodness. And they would, that, this is their, what they would say. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And stuff. I'm like, whoa. That's crazy. They just say this verse over and over. And the shirts had it on there and banners and stuff. So it's applied there. Do you know what Paul is talking about in this passage in Philippians 4? We don't have time to go through all of this. He's talking about living properly as one in poverty. Living faithfully to the Lord in poverty, and also living faithful to the Lord when he's, he has abundance, when he's wealthy. And he said that in his life, and you can go through that, that chapter, in his life he has had to learn to live both ways. There was a time where he lived wealthy, very well off, and he had to learn how to please the Lord when he was in that position. And then he found, I mean, he was smuggled out of a city in a basket after being stoned to death. I mean, they thought he was dead. And he, like, wakes up some other plate and keeps going. I mean, he's been through the ringer, right? He's like, I have to, I've had to learn. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This verse is talking about the attitude you have, whether you have wealth or whether you're in poverty. That's what this verse is talking about. I don't think Paul ripped any phone books. But that's what this verse is talking about. So a lot of our attitude towards rich and poor, I'll just tell you now, you can just just do a search on, on, on YouTube. You can get hoodwinked pretty quick. You start going down, down those paths, either through prosperity gospel or through a, a guilt, guilt-ridden social justice avenue. Both, both extremes are incorrect. Both are incorrect because the, the truth is somewhere, somewhere in the middle because Paul says here, I, I've learned to do both. I've learned to be faithful in both of these arenas. A few passages. First Samuel 2. Just a couple things. It kind of destroys our ideas. There's 1 Samuel chapter 2. We get a principle that says God is the one who makes people poor or rich in an ultimate sort of sense. You have no choice of what family you're born into. Lord knows. You could be born into a family that is very well off. You could be born into a family that has nothing. You could be born into a family that has everything stacked against you. You could be born into a family that stacked everything up. Right? It's the Lord who does that. Right? Ultimately, there's some responsibility there. Look at Job. Man, Job's another great example of this. Deals with these kind of thoughts and things. But Job chapter 1. 
when confronted with losing all of his wealth and his family and everything, Satan and his uh, limited but, you know, crafty wisdom left his wife alive, who just was terrible to him. He's the only one that was left alive in his whole family. After all of that, he says, Job says, naked I came into my mother's womb and naked I'll return. Lord gave, Lord's taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. This is a verse that's often thought of when people suffer, when you see other people suffer. I'll, I'll just tell you, this is probably not the verse to bring up when someone's in suffering. Talk about before, maybe after, but not in the middle of it. Okay, but this is an important thing to remember. We aren't guaranteed anything. The Lord gives, but the Lord also takes away. Now, it's a very scary thing when it's just you. When you, when you're, when you feel like you're all by yourself, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. What, what do I have? And for Job, when he spoke about it, he had nothing. He had nothing. He had ashes and shrapnel, that's it, that's of, of his former wealth. He says something interesting 34 chapters later. Job 34, 19, who shows no partiality to prince? He's talking about the Lord. It's not a question. It is a question, but he's not asking who. He's saying the Lord. The Lord is the one who shows no partiality to princes, nor regard to the rich more than the poor, for they are all the works of his hand. When a rich person prays versus a poor person, God shows no partiality between the two in that regard. He doesn't think, well, you're rich, so I'm, you, get to, you go to the head of the line. We actually do get some, and, it, and this is the principle that has to be taught, the Lord hears the poor. The Lord hears those who are oppressed. He hears those in poverty. And God protect anybody who is oppressing anyone because the Lord is the one who answers, answers those prayers. But all that to say, the point that's being, that's being put out here, princes and rich people don't go to the front of the line when they pray. That's just not how it goes. That's not how God's economy works. In Deuteronomy, we have a principle that's given. And it's highlighted in Matthew as well. But in Deuteronomy, chapter 15. Look at this weird verse. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Just that first statement. There will, never, there will never cease to be poor. He says, and therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother and to the needy and to the poor in your land. He's like, you'll never, never lose them. Now think about this. If you're rich enough, you think, well, if I just give everything I have, then the poor won't be poor anymore, right? There will never cease to be poor in the land. Jesus echoes this principle in Matthew 26. There's a woman who comes in and she anoints his feet with a costly, costly perfume. And Judas, one of the only times we really hear him speak, says, hey, we could have sold that and given it to the poor. And of course it says in there, yeah, but he, he was stealing from the poor box the whole time, so that's really why he said it. Um, but in Matthew 26, verse 11, Jesus says, you know what? The poor you'll always have. The poor you will always have. 
but shall not always have me. Now in that moment, what Jesus is talking about is very shortly after this, he would go to suffer and die. And so I'm saying, this woman right now can give me an offering, but she can't always give it to me like this whenever. So he accepted it. You will always have the poor with you. The poor you will always have. You will always have them. And the reason I, I want to say it that way, you will always have the poor, is that in our own thoughts and schemes and wisdom, we can try to find ways to take care of people, right? And I would, I would highlight again the porta potties set up on the side of Highway 12. We can, ta- we can find a way to take care of the poor. But guess what? The poor will always be with you. Why? Why is that always an enduring principle? I think a big reason is is because this lesson of giving has to be learned in every generation. And it will be learned in every generation. It has to be retaught to every group of children coming up to then be the givers. Someone did a, uh, some sort of mathematic and financial analysis they said if they took all of the wealth of the United States and evenly distributed it to everybody so everyone had exactly the same they said economically it's easy to see that within 90 days you'd have exactly the same people who are rich now rich again the people who are poor now would be poor again because a lot of it has to do with either behavior or situation or a lot of those things all that to say we can be as smart as we think we, we can about taking care of those things but you know what it comes down to There's no government program. There's no program we can put together in the church that is going to solve the problem. Do you know why? It's the same thing that Paul stated. I've learned to live as a rich man. I've learned to live as a poor man. I can do all things. The point is is that we are supposed to live this thing out. We are supposed to do it. We as the family of God are supposed to care for one another. And I would say this, we care for the church first. We care for each other. We have no business giving thousands and thousands of dollars to the poor and destitute and poverty-stricken outside of the church, and we have people inside of our own family that are suffering. So we have to think about that first. But you know what? It has to do with the giver. Back in our passage in 2 Corinthians 8. If you want to turn back there with me. In 2 Corinthians 8, it does say this in verse 5. It says, and this, not as we expected, said, but Paul says this about the Macedonian church. It says that they gave themselves first to the Lord and then gave to us. And this is the principle do you reason, the only reason why first fruit sacrifices work is because you're giving it to the Lord. You give to the Lord first. What's even bigger is these principles of first fruit and these principles of tithing, these are not reiterated in the New Testament. Instead, it's something much bigger. It's a Romans 12 kind of sacrifice. You, you are sacrificing yourself, all of you. You are giving yourself to the Lord so not 10%. And some people get away with that. They feel like, oh, I can give my 10% and then I can do whatever I want with 90. That's law, people. That's the law. That's you living by the law. I give my 10% and then who cares what happens with the rest? God doesn't care. I've given my 10. It's almost like you paid God off. 
I paid him, now I can do whatever I want. No. What God is interested in is your heart, your heart to give. You have to learn these lessons. We all do. As followers of God, we need to give as the Father gives. And for some of us who don't have much to give, we need to learn to humbly receive, like Jesus did. And that's the lesson that is really difficult for us to learn. Look at 2 Corinthians 9. Go one chapter over. We're going to finish here. Look at chapter 9. Look at verse 1 here. We're going to read through this part. Paul wants them to learn a lesson. And now he's going to just tell Corinth how it is. Verse 1, chapter 9. Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints. For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying, uh, saying that Achaia, Achaia has, uh, has been ready since last year. Right? So he went to Macedonia and said, thank you for your gift. The people in, in, in these other regions in Corinth, they're also giving. So, good. And your zeal has stirred up most of them, but I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready, as I said you would be. Okay, translation. <clears throat> I boasted about your giving to the Macedonians because they gave out of their poverty, so I'm sending some people to pick up the gift. All right? I'm sending people to pick up the gift that you have said you will give. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. Uh, so he even says there, and the people I'm bringing, they're from Macedonia. I'm bringing the people from Macedonia to come with me to pick this stuff up. And so, just letting you know, they're coming. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift and not an exaction. Now, I, man, we don't talk enough about that. Exaction. The brothers are coming to help you prepare so that when they show up, you're not giving. You know what exaction is? Exaction is giving out of guilt. What Paul is doing is he's trying to give them as many positive things to say, or to, to do, to think, to, hey, this gift that you're giving, you already promised it. It should have already been sent, but I'm sending folks over to you to come and pick it up. Just, just, just give how you're supposed to. Notice what Paul doesn't say. He doesn't say an amount. He doesn't say 10%. He doesn't say, he doesn't give any amount. He says, just make sure it's ready. And he has confidence that as they give, that when they first said that they would give, they, they stated that in a heart of generosity. And so he knows he's telling people who in their heart are generous, hey, we're going to send some people over. Just make sure it's ready. We, we're sending some other people to help you first off because they probably had to collect from a few different churches, right? And they'll help to take care of that. So when we show up, you can give the gift, and you can give the gift joyfully. Verse 6, the point is this. Stop for a second. I love it when Paul finishes my sermon. The point is this. 
The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Here's the whole of the matter. God is not going to tell us a number for you. Hey, there's a need over here. You have to give us $500 each. Pay up. We're not going to put a boot on your car to say, hey, you have to pay to get it off there, right? We're not going to do that. There's no one going to be standing next to a metal box out there so you can throw coins in it so we can hear the coins jingle before you can leave. No one's going to do that kind of thing. Those things, not the, not the car and the boot thing, but those kind of things have been done before. Right? That's not the point. The point is not to strangle hold and say you have to give something. But what it comes down to is this. The Lord is going to put on your heart what to give. You need to give that. And guess who you're responsible to? You're responsible to the Lord. Some of you look at that 10% number and you say, I could easily give that, whatever. All right, now you need to see if that's what the Lord wants you to give. For some of you, you say 10%. That's, that's what the Lord has put on my heart to give. Then give the 10%. That's, that's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is this. What the Lord puts on your heart, that's what you should give because you're responsible to the Lord to give what he's put on your heart. Now, for some of us, it's not just money. It's your other resources. It's your time. It's, it's your other giftedness, right? Because the point is, is that you're giving what the Lord has given you. If your first fruits deals mostly with time spent with people, give that. So, but we should also be giving of our resources. If the Macedonians gave till it hurt, we can give. We can give some. The point is, is that we should give what the Lord has told us to give. For a lot of us, we've never asked. Lord, what should I give? What should I give to refuge? What should I give here? So, <clears throat> going back to this. Do we tithe at refuge? No, we don't. Do you know why? The Lord might want to give you, make you give 11. Or 12. I don't know. Or the Lord might want you to give in multiple ways. That's between you and the Lord. You have to answer for that. There's one passage in, in, in Acts chapter 5, which you could always bring up. It's the only time in the New Testament where someone has been stricken down dead. And guess what it has to do with? Giving. You could say, like, hey, so they didn't give, so God struck them down dead. You better give. That's, that's not the point of the story. Woo. See, everyone else in Jerusalem, this actually goes back to the first part of the story. Jerusalem was giving. So everyone was giving, and they're saying, hey, I've got this property over here. I can give this. Something. I, have, I have some flock over here. I can sell these, and I can give, right? So they're all doing that, and Ananias and Sapphira said, we've got some property over here. We'll sell that, and we'll give it. And the Lord put on their heart to do it. So they went, and they sold it, and we don't know at what point. Maybe it was when they got paid, and they had the, had the money in their hand. They go, my goodness, this is a lot of money. I'll put a number on it just for us to think through it. They sold some property. They got $200,000 back, okay? Sonoma County prices, right, for just a property somewhere. Just not even a house, just land, okay? Sold the land. I have $200,000 in my hand. If you kept back fifty dollars and gave $150,000, would someone go to you and just be like, 
Shame, shame. You only gave 150K. No one's going to do that. It's $150,000. That's a nice gift. But the point was the Lord had put on their heart to give the entirety. They then told, I'm going to give the entirety. And they came and they coordinated this. This wasn't a mistake. Whoops, I gave you the wrong number. Because Ananias gives it. He says, oh, how much did you bring? I brought this much. Is that all of it? Yes? Dead. Oh, okay. They take his body out. I don't know who they got to bring, take the bodies away. But it always says, like, and they came and they took the bodies out. Sapphira shows up. Hey, saw you guys gave a gift. Said, yeah. Do you remember how much it was? Oh, is this much? Was it really? Yeah, that was what we got. Dead. Oh, two. Two dead in one day. We don't know how often this happened, but... The point is this, the Lord gave them and pressed upon their heart to give. And they lied. We have nothing else recorded of this later or whatever, but the point was not, you have to give or God's going to kill you. That's not the point. The point is, is that it's the Lord that determines that amount. It's the Lord that does that. That's between you and the Lord. So the bigger question, do we tithe here at Refuge? No, because that's between you and the Lord. But I want to impress, it's between you and the Lord. You're going to have to talk to him about it and do what he's telling you to do. That's the lesson to take from that. And I'll bring this up. This is probably a bad idea. I'm going to say it. I have the microphone. Some of you give so you get the tax benefit. If you do that, that's not, that's you giving to get something back. That's exaction. That's you receiving something in return for you giving. If that, I'm just going to say this. It's great to give. If you give and that is the reason you give, then don't. And I say that because you're going to have to answer to the Lord. Okay? If, and that's, this is, again, conversation between you and the Lord. If that is the reason you give, this is the worst thing to say on this Sunday. This is the last Sunday of the year. But I would say this, if God is leading you to give it, don't make that the reason. That's why it says in Matthew, it says, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Don't sit and calculate. It says in James, guess what pure religion is? You give to who? Orphans and widows. Do you know why that's pure religion? There's no way an orphan and a widow can give you anything back. Probably ever. That's the point. The point is the heart, the heart of giving. Do you give what the Lord wants you to give. So we go back to this main point that we have with the Corinthians. The Corinthians had. They needed to give. They needed to give because they were convicted to give and they promised they would. That's why Paul feels a little heavy-handed in there. But Paul doesn't say to them, you have to give X percent. He just doesn't. Because all for us. Do you know why the tithe is not emphasized? Because that's between you and the Lord. If you really wanted to calculate it, if you gave all the tithes talked about in the Old Testament, you're giving closer to 30%. So maybe you don't want to do the tithe. All this to say, we have the example of the father giving. The father gave so that the son could be the first fruits of the resurrection. He gave his son so that we could benefit. Jesus had riches. He had everything. And he became poor. He became nothing. 
and live that way. He lived poor. Even says in there, foxes have their holes, birds their nests. Son of man has nowhere to lay his head. He was homeless. He stayed with friends, but he had no estate. He had nothing. Lived that way, died a criminal's death, full of shame. Couldn't even afford to be buried someplace nice, so he was buried in someone else's tomb that was gifted to him. And yet, after the resurrection, he offers everything. As low as he went, he's now higher than any. What we give when we give is we give an investment in grace. We give because we've graciously received. We give knowing we will graciously receive. And for a lot of us, we haven't kept an account, and we shouldn't, of what the Father has promised to give us. But I will tell you what, the Father will not skimp when he gives. In fact, we've re- it's told that we have a guaranteed inheritance. We need to go back to what the nation of Israel, how they lived. Every morning, Jesus emphasized this, every morning, Lord, give me the, the bread for today. We're not unwise with our money because guess what? Naked we came in and naked we go out. Everything we have, we are stewarding. So are we stewarding it? Well, will we die with storehouses full? Or will we be doling out grace? This is something for you to talk to the Lord. And I would say, you know what? In this next year, make this an opportunity. Talk to the Lord. When you give, give what the Lord has called you to give. Nothing more, nothing less with what the Lord asks. But it does mean we need to have that conversation with the Father. Father, thank you so much for the examples that you've given us in your word. Thank you for the opportunities that you've given us, God, to give. I pray, God, that we would look at the opportunities we have to give as these opportunities for us to live like you, as Lord, that we could give like the Father gives, gives graciously, freely to all. The rain falls on the believer and the unbeliever. Right? Food is enjoyed, families are enjoyed by believer and unbeliever. We see how you give, Father. I pray that we would give in the same way. That if someone were to ask us, even today, walking through the rain, someone asks, hey, do you have any change? That we would give if we have, that we would give. We'd give what you are calling us to give, Lord, that we might give as the Father. And for some of us, God, we're in a place where we can't give in a huge way. We can't, uh, we can't give many gifts to other people. We can give of other resources and things. But if we're really feeling that pinch, Lord, I really feel, Lord, that, that we need to feel that. And we need to know and understand that you have grace for us, but that we need to give. We need to give like your son gave. Whatever he had, he gave. Even in his poverty. And we also need to graciously receive. Because we know if we have today, we may not have tomorrow. And so, Lord, I pray, Lord, that every day we would expect, expect that you'll provide either directly or indirectly through your family. But we know that you care for us, you love us, and that we will always have. And we pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.